Section 137, Introduction. When I was on my mission in 1930, the text of the Doctrine and Covenants ended with Section 136 except for Wilford Woodruff's Manifesto. Since 1930, however, the general authorities have felt that two additional manifestations of the Lord should be included in the Doctrine and Covenants. The first of these is a revelation which Joseph Smith received on January 21, 1836, when the leaders of the church were given the temple ordinances as far as they had been revealed up to that time. Joseph Smith records in the History of the Church, Volume 2, page 380, the following. The heavens were opened upon us, and I beheld the celestial kingdom of God, and the glory thereof, whether in the body or out I cannot tell. I saw the transcendent beauty of the gate through which the heirs of that kingdom will enter, which was like unto circling flames of fire. Also the blazing throne of God, whereon was seated the Father and the Son. I saw the beautiful streets of that kingdom, which had the appearance of being paved with gold. I saw Father Adam and Abraham, and my father and my mother, my brother Alvin, that has long since slept, and marveled how it was that he had obtained an inheritance in that kingdom, seeing that he had departed this life before the Lord had set his hand to gather Israel the second time, and had not been baptized for the remission of sins. Thus came the voice of the Lord unto me, saying, All who have died without a knowledge of this gospel, who would have received it, if they had been permitted to tarry, shall be heirs of the celestial kingdom of God. Also all that shall die henceforth without a knowledge of it, who would have received it with all their hearts, shall be heirs of that kingdom. For I, the Lord, will judge all men according to their works, according to the desire of their hearts. Joseph then added one more verse that became part of this revelation. He said, And I also beheld that all children who die before they arrive at the years of accountability are saved in the celestial kingdom of heaven. This almost implies that little children who die before the age of accountability are automatically saved in the celestial kingdom. However, the Lord later clarified that children who are heirs to the celestial kingdom still have the privilege of choosing the level of law they want to live under. The celestial law is extremely strict, and therefore the Lord says, and they who are not sanctified to the law of Christ must inherit another kingdom, even that of a terrestrial kingdom. For he that is not able to abide the law of the celestial kingdom cannot abide the celestial glory. And your glory, according to the level of law your spirit adopts, shall be that glory by which your bodies are quickened. Now that's Doctrine and Covenants section 88, verses 21 to 23 and 28. Of course, as Joseph Smith was told, all children who die before they reach the age of accountability are heirs of the celestial kingdom, but they still get to choose the level of law under which they want to live. 
and the level of law which they choose will determine the glory of the kingdom to which they will be resurrected. In other words, a child who is an heir to the celestial kingdom will not be compelled to live under celestial law. But whatever level of law he or she chooses will determine the level of glory to which he or she will be resurrected. This would help to explain why so many of the father's children who constitute the heathen nations end up in the terrestrial kingdom. That's Doctrine and Covenants 76 and 72. They appear to have lived out their earthly existence without becoming enemies of God. Therefore, they come forth in the first resurrection, as described in the Doctrine and Covenants 45 and 43. But they seem to have fallen short of the fullness of the redemptive gospel and are therefore resurrected to the terrestrial kingdom. However, statistics show that an amazingly high percentage of heathen children die before they reach the age of accountability. And since they are automatically heirs to the celestial kingdom, why do they end up with their parents in the terrestrial kingdom? We surmise that the strictness of the celestial kingdom may induce them to exercise their prerogative to choose a level of law a little less demanding. This logically turns out to be the terrestrial glory along with that of their parents. These thoughts are merely suggestive, and when we get the fullness of the gospel explained to us, we will discover whether or not these scriptural speculations are correct. Section 138, Introduction. Now we come to the second article which has been added to the Doctrine and Covenants in recent years. This is the sweeping revelatory vision of the prophet Joseph F. Smith just before he died. The last year of his life was discouraging and sad. In January 1918, the brightest light of his existence was extinguished. It was the sudden death of his eldest son, Hiram Mack Smith, a member of the Quorum of the Twelve and one of the most promising leaders among the younger general authorities of the church. He was only 45 years of age with the prospect of a brilliant future. His unexpected death from a ruptured appendix occurred on January 23, 1918. It came as a crushing blow to the president of the church. The health of President Joseph F. Smith was also deteriorating, and 1918 turned out to be the last year of his life. When the October conference convened, President Smith aroused every element of strength he possessed to speak briefly to the saints. The day before, he had received a thrilling revelation, but because of his weakness, he had to wait until the conference was over, and then he dictated it to his son, Joseph Fielding Smith. It was then presented to the members of the First Presidency, the Church Patriarch, and the Council of the Twelve on October 31, 1918. It carried the title, quote, The Vision of the Redemption of the Dead, unquote. All of the general authorities endorsed the revelation as the word of the Lord. The text of the vision first appeared in print when it was published by the Deseret News on November 30, 1918, but the prophet had already passed away on November the 19th. This revelation has been included in the Doctrine and Covenants ever since 1981. Here is the text of section 138. On the 3rd of October in the year 1918, 
I sat in my room pondering over the scriptures. For six months, President Joseph F. Smith had been very ill. On October the 3rd, 1918, while confined to his bed, he began meditating on the universal nature of the atonement. And reflecting upon the great atoning sacrifice that was made by the Son of God for the redemption of the world, and the great and wonderful love made manifest by the Father and the Son in the coming of the Redeemer into the world, that through his atonement, and by obedience to the principles of the gospel, mankind might be saved. He could not help but feel an expanded sense of appreciation for the love of the Father and the Son that led them to make this virtually incomprehensible sacrifice in order to save this round of creation from disintegration and destruction. While I was thus engaged, my mind reverted to the writings of the Apostle Peter, to the primitive saints scattered abroad throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and other parts of Asia, where the gospel had been preached after the crucifixion of the Lord. President Smith reflected on the work of the Apostle Peter as he went among the ancient cities proclaiming the message of the gospel. I opened the Bible and read the third and fourth chapters of the first epistle of Peter. And as I read, I was greatly impressed, more than I had ever been before, with the following passages. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. First Peter, third chapter, 18th through 20th verses. For for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. 1 Peter, 4th chapter, 6th verse. He marveled at the spirit of Peter which caused him to undertake this arduous mission. As I pondered over these things which are written, the eyes of my understanding were opened, and the Spirit of the Lord rested upon me, and I saw the hosts of the dead, both small and great. Suddenly his mind was opened to a vision, not of the ancient cities of Peter's day, but the spirits of all the hosts of the Father's children in the spirit world. And there were gathered together in one place an innumerable company of the spirits of the just, who had been faithful in the testimony of Jesus while they lived in mortality and who had offered sacrifice in the similitude of the great sacrifice of the Son of God, and had suffered tribulation in their Redeemer's name. He saw the righteous who were waiting for the resurrection, and they were so vast they could not be numbered. All these had departed the mortal life, firm in the hope of a glorious resurrection, through the grace of God the Father and His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. 
These were the righteous dead who had faithfully followed the law of Moses and suffered tribulation of the most cruel extremities for the sake of the Savior. I beheld that they were filled with joy and gladness and were rejoicing together because the day of their deliverance was at hand. They had not only lived valiantly, but they had died with a full assurance that they would be resurrected and redeemed as the Lord had promised them. Joseph F. Smith was impressed with the demonstration of joy which all of these spirits felt as the time for their resurrection drew near. They were assembled, awaiting the advent of the Son of God into the spirit world to declare their redemption from the bands of death. Their sleeping dust was to be restored unto its perfect frame, bone to his bone, and the sinews and the flesh upon them, the spirit and the body to be united, never again to be divided, that they might receive a fullness of joy. While this vast multitude waited and conversed, rejoicing in the hour of their deliverance from the chains of death, the Son of God appeared, declaring liberty to the captives who had been faithful. They knew the arrival of Jesus in the spirit world was imminent. As soon as the resurrection of Jesus had taken place, they knew he would appear in their midst. When the Savior did appear among the righteous spirits, they were overjoyed. His message was one of liberty for all those who had been held captive waiting for Jesus to liberate them in the resurrection. And there he preached to them the everlasting gospel, the doctrine of the resurrection and the redemption of mankind from the fall, and from individual sins on conditions of repentance. The Savior's message was a sermon on the fall, and the redemptive sacrifice of Jesus that would save believers from their sins. But unto the wicked he did not go, and among the ungodly and the unrepentant who had defiled themselves while in the flesh, his voice was not raised. Neither did the rebellious who rejected the testimonies and the warnings of the ancient prophets behold his presence, nor look upon his face. Where these were, darkness reigned, but among the righteous there was peace. Jesus did not preach among the wicked, nor among those who had heard the gospel during mortality and had rejected it. Then Joseph F. Smith saw the radiant rejoicing of the righteous as Jesus moved among them, declaring his glorious message. And the saints rejoiced in their redemption and bowed the knee and acknowledged the Son of God as their Redeemer and Deliverer from death and the chains of hell. Their countenances shone, and the radiance from the presence of the Lord rested upon them, and they sang praises unto his holy name. I marveled, for I understood that the Savior spent about three years in his ministry among the Jews and those of the house of Israel, endeavoring to teach them the everlasting gospel and call them unto repentance. And yet, notwithstanding his mighty works and miracles and proclamation of the truth in great power and authority, there were but few who hearkened to his voice and rejoiced in his presence and received salvation at his hands. But his ministry among those who were dead was limited to the brief time intervening between the crucifixion and his resurrection. 
President Smith knew the ministry among the dead was limited to the three days and nights his body was in the tomb. He wondered how he could preach to all the dead in so short a time. And I wondered at the words of Peter, wherein he said that the Son of God preached unto the spirits in prison who sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah and how it was possible for him to preach to those spirits and perform the necessary labor among them in so short a time. President Smith pondered the scriptures where Peter said that Jesus would preach to the vast multitudes who heard Noah preach the gospel but rejected it. He wondered how Jesus could possibly teach such a vast multitude in so short a time. By the next verse, we receive the answer directly from the Lord. And as I wondered, my eyes were opened and my understanding quickened, and I perceived that the Lord went not in person among the wicked and the disobedient who had rejected the truth to teach them. Nevertheless, Jesus did have the gospel taught to the spirits of the wicked who had rejected Noah, it says. But behold, from among the righteous he organized his forces and appointed messengers, clothed with power and authority, and commissioned them to go forth and carry the light of the gospel to them that were in darkness, even to all the spirits of men. And thus was the gospel preached to the dead. And the chosen messengers went forth to declare the acceptable day of the Lord, and proclaim liberty to the captives who were bound, even unto all who would repent of their sins and receive the gospel. Thus was the gospel preached to those who had died in their sins without a knowledge of the truth, or in transgression, having rejected the prophets. These were taught faith in God, repentance from sin, vicarious baptism for the remission of sins, the gift of the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands. After waiting for tens of centuries, these wretched spirits who were drowned in the great flood did finally get a second chance to accept the gospel and gain forgiveness of their sins. However, by rejecting the gospel during mortality, they lost the opportunity of inheriting the celestial kingdom. And that's in Doctrine and Covenants, section 76, verse 71 and 74 and all other principles of the gospel that were necessary for them to know, in order to qualify themselves that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. It is interesting that the spirits who rejected Noah were not only taught repentance in the spirit world, but also the broad ramifications of the entire gospel plan. And so it was made known among the dead, both small and great, the unrighteous as well as the faithful, that redemption had been wrought through the sacrifice of the Son of God upon the cross. Thus was it made known that our Redeemer spent his time during his sojourn in the world of spirits, instructing and preparing the faithful spirits of the prophets who had testified of him in the flesh that they might carry the message of redemption unto all the dead, unto whom he could not go personally because of their rebellion and transgression, 
that they, through the ministration of his servants, might also hear his words. It is interesting that the prophets of the past were prepared by Jesus in the spirit world to lead out in teaching faithful saints of the past ages how to minister to the spirits of the wicked. The wicked spirits had to become totally repentant before they could be taught the gospel. It was the task of the righteous spirits to help the wicked spirits prepare themselves for this great blessing. Among the great and mighty ones who were assembled in this vast congregation of the righteous were Father Adam, the Ancient of Days and Father of All, and our glorious Mother Eve, with many of her faithful daughters who had lived through the ages and worshipped the true and living God. We have already been told that the missionaries to this great throng of spirits will include the prophets of the past. Now we are told that this includes the noble and great ones of each dispensation. It even includes Father Adam, also Mother Eve, and all the righteous women down through the ages. These too will go forth as missionaries. Abel, the first martyr, was there, and his brother Seth, one of the mighty ones, who was in the express image of his father Adam. Notice that Abel is referred to as the first martyr among all the vast host of God's saints through all the generations of time. Seth was the first descendant of Adam who was allowed to receive all of the keys of the kingdom from the great patriarch of the race. It is interesting that the most notable thing about Seth was the fact that he was in the express image of father Adam. Noah who gave warning of the flood, Shem, the great high priest, Abraham, the father of the faithful, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses, the great lawgiver of Israel. According to Moses, chapter 9, verse 18, Noah spent 120 years preaching repentance to the wicked nations before the great flood wiped them off the face of the earth. After the flood, it was Shem who received the keys of the priesthood from Noah to carry on the survival of the gospel among mankind. And Isaiah, who declared by prophecy that the Redeemer was anointed to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that were bound, were also there. Isaiah was persecuted throughout his ministry but nevertheless faithfully proclaimed the coming of the Messiah to redeem the world. Moreover, Ezekiel, who was shown in vision the great valley of dry bones, which were to be clothed upon with flesh to come forth again in the resurrection of the dead, living souls. Ezekiel spent some of his writings concerning events in the latter days. He even described what it would be like when the first resurrection took place. Daniel, who foresaw and foretold the establishment of the kingdom of God in the latter days, never again to be destroyed nor given to other people. Daniel will also be among the great missionaries to the spirits of the dead. No doubt he will remind the wicked Jews who consented to the crucifixion of Christ that the coming of Christ, which he described in the second chapter of his writing, referred to the last days when Jesus would return to the earth and establish his kingdom as the King Messiah. 
However, the Jews thought he was supposed to overthrow the Romans and make the Jews the rulers of the world 2,000 years before Daniel's prophecy was scheduled to be fulfilled. Daniel had even said that his prophecy referred to the latter days. But when Jesus did not fulfill the second chapter of Daniel in his mortal ministry, they thought he was an imposter and therefore consented to his death. Elias, who was with Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration, and Malachi, the prophet who testified of the coming of Elijah, of whom also Moroni spake to the prophet Joseph Smith, declaring that he should come before the ushering in of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, were also there. Among the missionaries will be Elias, who was with Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration, and also Malachi, who predicted the coming of Elijah in the latter days, and also the burning of the wicked just before the second coming. The prophet Elijah was to plant in the hearts of the children the promises made to their fathers, foreshadowing the great work to be done in the temples of the Lord in the dispensation of the fullness of times for the redemption of the dead and the sealing of the children to their parents, lest the whole earth be smitten with a curse and utterly wasted at his coming. When Elijah comes, he will restore the sealing powers of the priesthood so that the work for the dead can commence and prevent the earth from being smitten with a curse and making it utterly wasted when Jesus comes to take over his kingdom. All these and many more, even the prophets who dwelt among the Nephites and testified of the coming of the Son of God, mingled in the vast assembly and waited for their deliverance. For the dead had looked upon the long absence of their spirits from their bodies as a bondage, for those righteous spirits who came to earth in the days of Adam, it was a long, tedious wait before the resurrection, and they counted it a tiresome burden to be without their physical bodies. These the Lord taught, and gave them power to come forth after his resurrection from the dead, to enter into his Father's kingdom, there to be crowned with immortality and eternal life, this verse implies that even the righteous spirits needed to be resurrected before they could return to the glorious kingdom of the Father and receive their crowns of glory. And continue thenceforth their labor, as had been promised by the Lord, and be partakers of all blessings which were held in reserve for them that love him. It is taught in this verse that only after the resurrection and redemption of the righteous are they able to press forward and perform the great work which God has held in store for them. The prophet Joseph Smith and my father Hiram Smith, Brigham Young, John Taylor, Wilfred Woodruff, and other choice spirits who were reserved to come forth in the fullness of times to take part in laying the foundations of the great latter-day work, including the building of the temples and the performance of ordinances therein for the redemption of the dead, were also in the spirit world. I observed that they were also among the noble and great ones who were chosen in the beginning to be rulers in the church of God. 
President Joseph F. Smith saw all of the modern prophets being resurrected in due time and returning to the presence of the Father. He saw that they had been set apart during the pre-existence to come forth in modern times, to rule over the church and minister the ordinances to the saints in the vast array of sacred temples which would be built throughout the church. Even before they were born, they, with many others, received their first lessons in the world of spirits and were prepared to come forth in the due time of the Lord to labor in his vineyard for the salvation of the souls of men. I beheld that the faithful elders of this dispensation, when they depart from mortal life, continue their labors in the preaching of the gospel of repentance and redemption through the sacrifice of the only begotten Son of God among those who are in darkness and under the bondage of sin in the great world of the spirits of the dead. The dead who repent will be redeemed through obedience to the ordinances of the house of God. The vision had shown the great missionary work of the prophets among the spirits of the dead, and now he sees that a similar assignment will be given to all the righteous elders who live and die during the last dispensation. And after they have paid the penalty of their transgressions and are washed clean, shall receive a reward according to their works, for they are heirs of salvation. This verse is highly significant for the members of the priesthood who do not bring all of their sins under the atonement. They will have to pay for those sins themselves by suffering outer darkness until they have paid the uttermost farthing. Then they are pronounced clean and allowed to join the rest of the priesthood as heirs of salvation. We have previously discussed this cleansing process in connection with section 76, verses 37 to 38, where we talked about the redemption of the wicked. Thus was the vision of the redemption of the dead revealed to me, and I bear record, and I know that this record is true through the blessing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, even so. Amen. As we come to the conclusion of this glorious vision, we have the earnest testimony of the prophet Joseph F. Smith that it is all true. If you liked this podcast and would like access to other materials by W. Cleon Skousen, you can find them online at skousenlibrary.com.